Well, you're going to need your Bibles to remain open to Romans chapter 7, or 13, and verses 1 to 7. So, find your place there. We have much to do with this passage. It is placed here for the benefit of God's people through all the, all the ages. For 2,000 plus years, it has spoken to God's people as to what is to be the responsibility that we have personally to the state, to the government under which we live. Very important item, especially at this time. But I think we need to pray first. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we come to you with grateful hearts for the magnitude of your mercies to us. Lord, you have been so gracious to us in uh, the formation of this nation in which we enjoy freedoms and the likes of which no nation has ever experienced on this planet. You've given to us some undeserved um, gifts, freedom. And, oh Lord, we've not always used it well. We've sinned against you. We have, Lord. We thank you for those founding fathers who did grapple with many issues and forged out a government that certainly recognizes human nature for what it is, the dangers of the sinful human heart and how it has to be checked. Lord, we've sinned against you. We tolerated slavery for hundreds of years. Then we tolerated a kind of vicious segregation and Jim Crow and many, many of your people look the other way who could have been a conscience desperately needed. And we, we realize, Lord, we have suffered, we are suffering consequences of the sins of those who've come before us. But Lord, you're a forgiving God, and you grant to us the uh, gifts of recovering from the consequences of sin. And you're ready to hear us and meet us as and where we are. Thank you. My Father, I give you thanks for these who've gathered here this morning. Some are not well. Some are working hard to concentrate because because of some infirmity, some sickness, or some anxiety. A family member is not doing well at all. And pray for those who are fighting cancer and dealing with these limitations that uh, can just... uh, paralyze us and (laughs) keep us limited. So, Lord, now I pray that you will give comfort, give uh, a listening ear that we need. We'll hear, be hearers of the word, and also that we'll be, well, as we're doers, we'll be hearers and consistent with what you've spoken to us graciously. And, Father, we want to pray for John and Rachel Sherwood as they labor faithfully in their work with international students and in multiple other ways in counseling and working for uh, personally in their neighborhood in an exemplary way. Renew them in confidence and joy in you, wisdom in their conversations, provide for their their physical, financial needs, and Give them the encouragements they need today in Christ. Keep them strong and (coughs) consistent 
for you and your glory in, the, in their neighborhood. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible, the Bible is a book about politics. Think about that. The Bible is a political book. Do you flinch at that? <clears throat> to the extent that we do, we really didn't get it. <laughs> when you consider, I've been reading in the last uh, couple of months as my Bible reading. <clears throat> I had I've been reading through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It's all about politics. Well, God ruling over this world, laws, statutes, ordinances. Kingdoms, empires, courts, judges, kings, queens, taxes. And the prophets come up and speak to Israel. Speak to the nation with their, uh, about their failures in being obedient to the commands of God to their government. Now, with this understood, Israel was in a unique form, had a unique form of government. A theocracy. If I may, I say the church and the state were the same, though Israel was not the church, but you get the point, I think. That a theocracy is, was a unique period of time as God's kingdom plan unfolds through Scripture. God sovereignly rules as king over all the universe, yes. And his kingdom plan is being worked out on earth through the Old Testament and looking to the coming kingdom of Christ. So, God raises up governments. You cannot help but see this. I just marked my Bible up as I'm reading. I was in Second Chronicles. It was on our, our verse this morning, Second Chronicles 20, 26, the Valley of Baraka. <laughs> We're good to come upon that one again. And you can see God raises up governments. He raises up kingdoms. He dismantles them. He takes them down. All of that. And we know, as I said earlier, we're in a unique period of time in uh, the plan of God, unique, certainly different from the theocracy, the theocratic kingdom. In Israel, we're in the times of the Gentiles, spoken of in Luke 21 and 24, where the Gentiles have some say and rule over the city of Jerusalem, ultimately. But God is actively working virtually in every page when you go through the scriptures, particularly you see this in the Old Testament. Keep that in mind, and we can draw principles from it. And we'll, I'll ref, refer, come back to that later on. But what are we experiencing now? This may seem juvenile, but I remember a nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, but it fell to pieces. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Shattered. However, the story, we can fill in some blanks, there was an attempt to deal with Humpty Dumpty, who sat on that precipice, probably looking out, oh, I don't know, may I embellish the nursery rhyme? Looking out over what uh, he, he could see that over which he felt some rule 
that was his domain. <clears throat> so what did he do? Well, what he did was go to the kings and all the king's horses and all the king's men. Couldn't put him back together again. But we would put it in our language. He went to the White House. There is the answer to the brokenness of government, of leadership. Just more government. That's all we need. Let's pump more money into it. Let's get it done. Well, if I may come back off that for a moment and just to point out the fact that we are in a social, economic, moral decline in our nation. And we do have the Old Testament to help us here. How so? You know, when you look in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 10.6 and Romans chapter 14, 15, verse 4, that these things in the Old Testament scriptures are there to, we're told, to be our example. We can draw principles from them. Now, we don't live under a theocracy. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. We don't get those two confused. However, we can go to the scripture because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. And so we can learn from these situations. I, am, I find too many Christians, uh, certainly our culture is, is this, we're relying on the secularist to define our worldview. I think, how many times do even Christians watch the news and they're just pouring everything through secularism to come to their conclusions about what's happening in our nation, our government, to our culture, and in society. We hear these terms, liberals, conservatives, libertarians, leftism, slash Marxism. And layer in on top of this, now this frightening language that the media is putting out there upon us and the technocrats are telling us that this artificial intelligence is going to eat our lunch. <laughs> We're making something that's going to destroy us. Tribalism. Everybody's got to find their tribe, their group. And get your tribe, get your identity from that tribe, and therefore be on the alert for those who are coming against you in your tribe. Tribalism. It's awful. It's the ruin. It's the ruin of a nation. Marxism. And it's long march through the institutions to create a division, divide and conquer, the oppressed versus the oppressor. And people are thinking this way with regard to what's happening in our nation. Nihilism, moral revolt, the LBGTQ plus agenda, which is just driving so much in the corporate world, investment world, government, all the institutions. I'm here to tell you that the scriptures are sufficient to speak to all things. They're sufficient to speak to government. And I lifted this quote from a good source of mine. It says, the same Bible that provides guidance and directions for how individuals, families, and churches ought to operate also gives clarity on how nations are to function politically. It's not, it's not just uh, free range with regard to politics. But Christians have 
developed some kind of bubbleism with regard to the world in which we live. Afraid, I understand that uh, you know we try to honor this so-called separation of church and state. More about that later, and we try to honor that by we we don't endorse candidates. We're careful there. Have always I can speak from my own pulpit ministry over the years that never given people instructions from the pulpit on how to vote, but that there is a grid through which we pour everything, namely Scripture, the whole counsel of God, so that we can see what the God-ordained order is to be, what it looks like. So therefore, with that said, let's look at this passage, Romans 13. I'm going to walk you through it. Here's what we'll do. <clears throat> we're going to go back. We're going to walk. We got down to verse 3. We're going to uh, finish it out and look at it and see the issues, and then we'll look at the principles that arise from it. You have uh, a modest outline there in the bulletin, if you would like to use that and follow along. But first of all, we want to walk through these verses in Romans 13. Let every person, everyone must submit, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. God's the author of authority. It's the ultimate principle in his sovereign rule over the world, over the nations. And so accept no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, or consequently, as a result of this truth, he who resists authority literally sets himself against and opposes the ordinance of God. They who have opposed will receive condemnation. That is, you can expect the strong arm of government to come against those who resist the government and those who break the law. Now, that's the way it's supposed to work. Now, that gets nuanced and we're, this is not saying that we want to have an unaccountable police force or military in our own kind of government. Uh, Commander-in-chief is a, a civilian. It's the President of the United States. And so we keep that in mind, and matters of policing, we see that. We'll come to that later. But condemnation upon themselves be punished by the government for breaking the law. I won't ask for raising a hand. Just thought, just rushed across my mind that have you ever had to pay some fine or answer to the government for breaking some kind of law? Maybe it was only 15 minutes, 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. As we, we always tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but there are those laws, and they are to be observed. So. From God, through the human instrumentality, God uses the government as a means of restraining evil. But then he adds this. <clears throat> he says, they will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers, explaining this condemnation, are not a cause of fear for good behavior. If you obey the law, you stay within the speed limit, you pay the fines or you avoid paying the signs, you observe the burning season, the fire season, you know, all those kinds of things. For fear, cause of fear for good behavior, 
They, government exists to provide for the good of society, so it will be orderly. We're told in 2 Timothy, in chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, that we pray for government, that it will be a government that will be one established on justice and righteousness, that we can live a peaceful, quiet life, an orderly life. And so then he says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, do what's good, and you will have praise from the same. So what do we do? We obey the laws. We participate in public affairs, civic affairs. We uh, participate in jury duty when necessary pay our taxes, and to varying degrees in the defense of our country, serving in the military. For it is as a minister of God, interesting language here, this word ministers, diakonos, have we ever thought of our government officials as being deacons? <laughs> it's the same word, I understand the difference. It's a, a civic official, is a minister, a diakonos of God to you for good. Government exists for the good of the church as well as for the good of the non-Christian. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. Well, we're going to examine that more closely, but he's giving to government the right to exercise capital punishment, to use the strong arm of government, I think, in premeditated murder for capital punishment the sword for nothing. For it is, here we are again, Diakonos, a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. I remember a story I heard years ago, uh, Dr. Walter Wilson, who started a Bible school in the Kansas City area. I uh, forgot the name of the Bible college, but he was well known as just a, a prolific, he was a great witness. He just found all kinds of ways to like asking somebody at a service station in the old days, how did sin get in Sinclair? And then going from there. And uh, he tells the story on one occasion how he was speaking with some, a police officer and thanked him for being a minister and how appreciative he was of being a minister. Many other police officers, he'd been called a lot of things, but he'd never been called a minister. And then Dr. Wilson then referenced this passage in Romans 13, that they're ministers of God and his instruments to accomplish his purposes. And so therefore, who will bring wrath upon the, the one who practices evil. And then, wherefore? Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, the wrath of the government that it exercises through, the, uh, through fines and could be jail or whatever, but also for conscience sake. The Bible expects Christians to have, we are to have a biblically informed conscience. Uh, don't have time to really develop this issue of conscience, but to say this much, that the biblically informed conscience of the believer is to be aware of the nature and purpose of government. Just a caution here. I, I hear this, I think I heard it just this week, 
that someone was being interviewed and they were being appealed to or they were making the appeal. They had to do such and such because of conscience. Well, you know what? That's really neither here nor there. Your, your conscience is not the final authority. It's what's in the conscience it's, that governs how you think and what you do in response. It's your internal speedometer. It's the check. It's the whistle in the mouth of the referee. And if you violate what is a biblical standard, the whistle will blow. And <clears throat> But what's happened uh, in the language and way that people think about conscience, it's made synonymous with emotion. So if you've got this emotional conviction, people want to appeal to that, then <clears throat> how can I violate that? Well, that's completely off the map with regard to what conscience is, what, how it's to function. But a good conscience, one that's working right, is one where there's no condemnation, it's infused with biblical truth, and it seeks to live by that. So he's saying that in this one word, for conscience sake. For because of this, you also, all right, hold on for this one, pay taxes. That's right, you do. We do. For rulers are servants of God. Interesting little shift in the word here. The word that's translated here, servant, is not the one we've had twice already, diakonos. This particular word is a word that comes from the uh, world of the, of, the, of the priest class, of the temple, and public servants here are really being described by a term that describes them as a priestly service. And it's, it's used this way in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 2, Romans 15 and 16. So God's servants have a priestly role in representing God in providing for the order and stability of society. You know, government, I know we, we chafe at this matter of taxes, but if all things being equal, if things were right, government take, does take workers. It, it does take effort, and it's often not easy. Uh, I'm not giving our argument here for the bureaucratic the administrative state, but it does take some, it, you have to pay police officers. You have to pay for those people who run the government. That's why he brings it up. Devoting themselves to this very thing. They give their full time to governing, and that should be honored and respected. Render to all, now this is actually the third imperative that comes up in these seven verses. Render to all, or it's give back. Give everyone what you owe him. That's our public, speaking our public debts. That's what taxes are. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do? Well, you know, they're varying taxes. There would be there are building codes. There are taxes on just about everything any longer. Tax on gasoline. Tax on your power bill. Taxes here and there, wherever taxes. Hidden taxes, open taxes, custom to whom custom. Import and export taxation. Fear to whom fear, ultimately to God and fearing him and therefore ordering the moral decisions that are made based on this transcendent moral order that exists beyond government. 
Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Special recognition for those who do good work and are, have given themselves in public service. So you know, a passage like this does knock the legs right out from under what is, I think, a tendency of the human heart, certainly among believers, to begin to get cynical and angry at government and see government as the enemy and be suspicious of it. We have to watch ourselves here. That's not to say that we're looking at the world through rose-colored glasses and that uh, government can do no wrong. There are places in this world where Christians, and I've been there and taught them in some of these places, where the local people will tell me that they see the government is their enemy and they, the, the, the police force is, the, is, is their enemy. And we think we have it difficult here and there, but it's where the corruption is so deep, it's so pervasive that people ultimately own their own. And so we are, with this passage then, we're ready to continue what we need to look at in terms of truth statements. All right, let's go to this statement, and I didn't get to it in our work last week, but let's go to it now. God has appointed government authority to re reward good and evil. The biblical goal of civil government, mark it down, it's to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and compassionately responsible environment for freedom to flourish. I found that. It's good. I thought it would work here. Does it help? Let me say it again. Biblical goal of civil government is to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and compassionately responsible environment for freedom to flourish. Public offic political officials are servants of God. Don't need to go with that further. But there is a moral authority under which government functions, is to function, should serve. Might does not make right. There is badness, there is wrong. Government is supposed to punish that. You see the assumption here. Government doesn't make up what is right and wrong. God's transcendent at moral law that exists in the universe and over this planet. And there is this moral authority in the universe which, to which government must conform. Now, we're beginning to feel some tension with that, but let's go further with it. There is a greater reality than civil authority. Didn't Jesus say that before Pilate? You would have no authority. You would have no power. It had been ordained or given to you. You're not independent of God. You're not autonomous. Oh, my, has that come in to just suck the life out of what should be normal respectful uh, living with one another, but now the human being is autonomous. You see it everywhere. I have rights. We speak of governmental rights, national, these rights. Well, who gave you these rights? Where did you get them? We saw that thrown about this past week. So good is what you do. The approval of the government does not define the good. All right, let's press it further. Doing what is good does what? It involves obeying the laws, participating in civic affairs, paying taxes, and participating in the defense of the country. And look at the issues that are before government that we have to participate in one way or another. War, the matter of marriage, what constitutes marriage? Abortion, what is the so-called right of abortion? 
and what is involved in that morally. Other matters that come to us, pornography, poverty, care for the environment, capital punishment, education, moral standards, and now transgender ideology. So these things set before us now, and we're finding the, the, the uh, I won't just say awkward, I would say this, this challenge to us in our, our moral mind that government now is coming out and speaking up for what is morally evil and putting it out there. Makes things a little more complicated. But just pause and think of all the laws and our ordinances that govern us. And this is an important way to stop and do some self-examination. The use of our streets. Uh, no extra charge for this. Would somebody please get those barrels off Highway 54 so we can go, <laughs> so we can go from one... Can, we can go from uh, Fayetteville to Jonesboro, and uh, it's, I, I shouldn't take long on this, but I was sitting at a red light the other day. All right, I'll be brief here. Right up here at Banks Road. That's a very dangerous place right there. And I was sitting there, wait to go out, turn left, come back home. And all of a sudden, I heard a horn blow. And then I heard this awful sound, the kind that really gives you adrenaline rush. It was obviously a wreck. I didn't see it, but I heard it, and I'm sitting there. I said, that wreck's here. Bang! And uh, I heard, you know, body, not body parts, thankfully, but car parts flying. And then I saw this large, I was in my little truck, and I saw this big, uh, this SUV was coming toward me. Obviously, it had been hit. And it was just coming. To, I'm just sitting there. I must, it must have stopped maybe about an inch from my car. Then as I pulled on out and got away from the scene of the accident, I could see what happened there. It's a dangerous road. All right, no extra charge for that. Be careful on Highway 54. It's a dangerous place. Okay, excuse me. All right, use of our streets, signs, speed limit, building codes, septic tanks, water lines, gas. We all got stories about these things, but we understand, you see how they fit into government and living responsibly as God's people within the governmental uh, guidelines. Uh, easements, garbage, parking, fishing licenses, hunting licenses, keeping grass cut, no loud mufflers, seat belts, uh, noise, animals, uh, all these things uh, come up to us. Now, let me do this. Before we transition on to, I want to come to this sword statement and deal with another, the fourth principle. Let me just present to you a few questions, and I'll be brief in answering them. I've got about five of these questions that I think would be uh, natural to come up at this time. First of all, does the Bible declare what form of government under which we should live? And the answer is no. Uh, now, it's been tried in places, and even at one time, an environment or a culture, shall we say, uh, sought to affirm, declare dogmatically and the divine right of kings. It was in the, in the Stuarts, the Stuarts, uh, the kingship back in the what, 17, eight, 1700s in England. Divine right of kings. No, there isn't. There is no divine right. And it was pushed back. That's why the Puritans finally, they said, we're, we're out of here. <laughs> they came to New England. But there is no government that's mandated by God. 
Now, is it more difficult to live under some forms of government than others? The more totalitarian a government becomes, the more controlling, and the more the constant power is concentrated in one, whether it's a, or a multiple people, oligarchies, monarchies, a constitutional republic. I happen to think that a constitutional republican democracy is probably the best form of government that we're going to get this side of the kingdom of Christ when it comes to earth. And this, the Declaration of Independence, and this protects, I'm, I'm reading, I recommend the reading, it's uh, David McCullough's book on John Adams, and it does more than just tell you about John Adams. You really are getting a good feel for what was going on in the back and forth in the Congressional Congress in the 1770s, and how the formating, forming up the documents that determine how we live today, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence. And you can appreciate what, how they think and what they're doing. And you say, well, I'm glad they're thinking that way. How we need checks and balances. How we distinguish ourselves. We certainly were doing so in contrast to the French, French Revolution and the way it went forward. But we even had those at that time in our own government who somewhere were pro-France uh, in, the, in the revolution. And another issue. But there had to be checks and balances. But... I have to breeze by this. I'd like to stay a further a little longer with it. That the way our leaders were thinking, they were especially John Adams, who had much to do with forming our, our many of our documents. He and Thomas Jefferson, though they did butt heads, that he had a Puritan heritage, and <clears throat> it shows up particularly in one source, and she affected him tremendously in the way he went. I, I, it's fascinating to read the correspondence between uh, John Adams and Abigail. And this is what I wrote. I came across this in the biography the other day. It said, Abigail Adams, in writing back to her husband, she said, I am more and more convinced that man is a dangerous creature and that power, whether vested in many or few, is ever grasping. She wrote that to him while he was in the Congressional Congress there in Philadelphia, and they're working on all the documents and how we're going to put things together and become. Uh, so there were some in those days who were not quite as clear-minded as John Adams. But let's go to this next question. Does submitting to government authority mean that Christians are to obey laws that conflict with God's moral laws? Well, for many, and probably most here this morning, this is um, government theology 101. No, we do not do that. Absolutely not. The Christian, we have a dual citizenship. We have a higher authority than just human government. We have dual responsibilities to God and to civil government. All right, it does create some challenges at time. We have to examine ourselves. But Christians must obey God's laws rather than man's if and when they conflict with one another. You see this in the book of Acts. The apostles were clear on this. Though it was the Sanhedrin to whom authority had been delegated by the Roman authority. And they told the apostles, you can't preach anymore. And he says, not on our watch. <laughs> They rejected that and refused to submit to that. So we must obey God, and if 
the state commands that which would cause us to conflict or contradict the law of God, we go with the law of God. And many have given their lives on the basis of that truth. And we can go back. We don't have to stay in the New Testament and Acts for that. Go back to look how, notice how Daniel functioned and how it came to the issue within the theocratic law, though he was... Um, he was exported out of, out of uh, the land of promise into Babylon, but he wanted to observe the dietary laws, and he went with doing that rather than what the king was commanding. Uh, those kinds. Then there was Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel in the lion's den, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Why? Because they refused to bow, they refused to not pray any further or to pray to the to the gods of Marduk or to Nebuchadnezzar. But what we're living to see is that increasingly the secular West is, is making it more and more difficult for Christians to function consistently in obedience to God. There's pressure. And we're actually returning more and more to what it was like in the first century. So we shouldn't feel like we're just victims of something that's happened, never happened to the Christian church before. The early church had to meet all this the first time as a church in the first century. So therefore, Christians must resist when asked to do an immoral act. Let's get it down to some fine tuning. If one is asked to falsify records, perjury for the sake of the department, cooking the books, to protect profits, taking tools from the employer, covering for subordinates by means of falsehoods. These are things that violate the moral law of God and displease him. Now in our future, what do we face? Increasing pressure. Some soapboxes I could step upon this time, but can only go by them briefly. And this whole business of preferred pronouns. It's being pressed in states, and it's being pressed in cities. And there are Christians in businesses and in, in, in governments, local governments, and in, in schools, in, in institutions, who are having to step up to the line and say, I will not observe that. I will not do that. So it's getting closer and closer. If it hasn't come to you, my guess is it will. And it's just a matter of time. And so... These things of same-sex marriage and homosexuality, even spankings. Now, Sweden took it to the next level. No longer can you spank in school. Did you ever get a spanking in school, the paddle? Some of us can remember those days. The only outrage we had was that maybe it was better they gave it than our parents gave it to us. And so these kinds of things have shifted in the culture dramatically. Sea change, which has taken place. But... I can remember uh, well going to Francis Schaeffer's seminars, How Should We Then Live, uh, was the title, I've used that often. This was back in the 70s, we, in our formation of our church days, and we had uh, Everett Coop and, and, uh, and Francis Schaeffer, and did just tremendous work, and so prescient was Francis Schaeffer and what he saw. I recall the book to which he kept referring, I was a little... Uh, untried in this, uh, but since the book he kept referring to Lex Rex, Lex Rex, and that means law is king, 
Samuel Rutherford's book. And not the government is king, but God is ultimately king. The law is king in making that because as abortion was coming on strong with the Supreme Court decision in 1973. Well, okay, enough there. But the third question, does the separation of church and state mean that government should exclude religion? This has become a convenient ploy of the secularist. And they think that they have a friend in the Founding Fathers in Thomas Jefferson. I referred to a biography by Thomas, about, by Thomas Kidd, about Thomas Jefferson, a biography in spirit and in flesh of Thomas Jefferson. Very good. Documented. I mean, pages and pages of, of footnotes and documentation. And I was recently reading, I don't, I'm not going to have time to, to go, go there and do it, but I, I copied the page out of that discussing the Danbury Baptist. Maybe this help you a little bit, at least maybe incentivize you to don't let anyone bully you into thinking if you heard this wall of separation. And I think this should speak for itself, that the president told the Danbury Baptist that he believed, like them, that, quote, religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, and that he owes account to none or other for his faith or his worship, and the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. He commended the First Amendment, quote, that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation. There it is. It was his language between church and state. Now, this is after that quote. To Jefferson, this meant that the nation could not, could have no established church. It was not a separation of God from the state, and that's the way the secularists are simply are attempting to use it. And they bully, they bully, they bully in the media and other places and in educational institutions and classrooms. And so to take this to just get dismiss God. God from the room. But that's a, there's a longer section. I've just taken just a small part of that. It's, it's worth reading to see the sense of that statement in that time. And so, therefore, it does not. The separation of church and state means simply a free church in a free state. Freedom of religion does not mean freedom from religion. Uh, somebody showed me this quote recently. I had already had it in my notes, and I think I may have even used it in the morning minute. This is from John Adams, one of the key fact persons in formation of our Constitution and so on. Our Constitution, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. So they had that sensibility, more, some more so than others, some more so than, say, Thomas Jefferson, who you have to get a little uneasy, uneasy about Jefferson at times, though the secularists like to have him as their special mascot, but he would not agree with them on many of their conclusions, enough of that. Number four, can the Christian serve in the military and not violate his responsibility to obey God's laws? That almost should go without even having to answer it, but absolutely they serve. You can find in the Gospel of Luke in the opening chapters where 
John the Baptist and Christ are giving out the guidance for the, those in the military. You know, they're not told to divest themselves from any authority. And you know, I'm off my point a little bit. When you read church history, you'll see how many Christians were in the Roman army in the first century, in those centuries. And I worked, it worked two ways, but there were many Christians who were serving in the military. All right, can Christians serve in the military and serve God at the same time? Is that right? Should all my veterans stand at this moment and say that you have served God by serving in, your, in the military? It was part of your being a deacon, if you will, a priest to protect us. And we as Christians, therefore, should be uh, clear in their minds on the importance of having a good defense. I'm not talking about football. I'm talking about government and protecting our borders and our nation. And we have people, it's moral insanity, folks. I don't have to convince you. You want to defund the police? You're going to cut back in the military budget? Now, I know that gets iffy because you, you know, you've got the military industrial complex and all the arguments that go on about that, and General Eisenhower and the 1950s. And, and, but listen, uh, our world is, is a bad place. There are evil people. And we're facing threats, dangers, very real, from the communist Chinese. Not Chinese people. They're not, Chinese people are not our enemies. But their form of government is evil, evil to the core, Communist Party. And we're facing it also from what used to be the old Soviet Union and in Russia. And they're dangerous from the East and the West and then throw in Iran. And we have got to have a good defense. And we need young men and young women who will serve in the military and make themselves... Uh, Make themselves good servants, good priests, good deacons, if you will, in serving in that manner. And it's a legitimate part of serving the state for good and the restraint of evil. I don't need to press that, surely not any longer. It's so important. Should Christians speak out against corruption among government officials and bad laws? Absolutely. This is part of the Christian responsibility as citizens of the state. Listen to this. Deuteronomy, excuse me, Jeremiah 29.7. God gives instruction to Israel in exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for its, on its behalf. For its welfare, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So it is for the church in the, in the, the nation in which we find ourselves. This uh, is an important uh, statement that I think we need to, it, I'm going to draft on what I just said, but listen to this. This comes from a book I've had in my library and I've read from, I've had it some time, it came out in 2003, The Homosexual Agenda by Alan Sears and Craig Oston. And this leapt out. I underlined it years ago and it's come back again they say to take a look at what's possible what possibly waits, awaits for the church we need to look no further than the past the Rutgers Journal of Law and Religion recently <clears throat> published this was back 2003 earlier recently published an article with that summarized several documents from World, World War II era 
One of these documents was, quote, the persecution of Christian churches by the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, the intelligence agency that had been set up in World War II to spy on Germany and its allies. This was Nazi-driven. The report reads as follows, quote, the Nazis believed that the churches could be starved and strangled spiritually in a relatively short time when they were deprived of all means of communication with, with the faithful beyond the church building. Chuck Donovan, whose father served in the OSS, writes about what happened in Nazi Germany. Quote, at first, Nazi leadership feigned a desire for peace with Christian churches through the Concordat of 1933 with the Catholic Church and pledging to honor the freedom of the Protestant churches so long as the churches gave up their involvement in political issues. Then the Nazis began tightening the screws under the pretext that the churches themselves were interfering in political and state matters. The Nazis would deprive the churches step by step of all opportunity to affect German public life. Breaking the back of Christianity in Germany was aimed at cutting off the education and formation of the rising generation from its heritage of faith, eerily similar to what is happening in government schools today. As extreme as these goals seem to be, capturing youth and pressuring the church to abandon its witness in the public square are almost universal phenomena now. The assault on religious freedom also extends beyond the church wall, church walls to individual believers in the workplace and religious organizations and so forth. Just to keep you alert into, should the church speak out against the evil? Absolutely it should. All right, let's move on. I must be brief with this last statement here, this last principle, and I have a conclusion that I must fold into this quickly. And here it is. Should the government take the life of a person who has been convicted of certain crimes? God has given human government the right to carry out capital punishment. For the sake of time, I'm going to have to delete some of the issues that I I don't sense that I need to really develop this fully. I have in my notes quite a bit of factors, but I'll just say one or two things on this. The sanctity of human life requires capital punishment. The foundation of government is provided here. Man is made in the image of God, in Mago Dei, Genesis 1. Human beings are more like God than anything else on the earth, end quote. Violence in the form of murder is an outrage against God. Punishment is to be carried out by man, human beings. Noah, the representative of the head of the human race post-flood in Genesis 6:11, that the flood brought on by the evil and violence of a pre-Diluvian civilization Murder, murder, violence brought the deterioration and corruption of the entire world civilization before Noah, by Noah's day. Murder is wrong because, and quote Norman Geisler said this famously, it's killing God in effigy. I'm going to have to tie it up there, but I will say that 
what we are seeing develop, and it's been going on for decades now, is the abandonment of capital punishment for those guilty of premeditated murder. I understand, just a footnote here, that one of the weaknesses in our system has been that money has been able to buy wealthy people out of crimes for which they were obviously guilty because they can afford to have so many expert or great uh, lawyers and get themselves out of the death penalty. Whereas poor people, black and white, poor people were not, didn't have the access to such a luxury. So address those problems, but don't abandon the fact that when a human life is taken, and I'm personally convinced that what is happening in our own nation is that these drive-by shootings, so-called random murders every day in the papers, more, more, and more, and mass shootings and serial killers, this kind of thing. It's a consequence of what we've done. We've abandoned the sanctity of human life. I think personally it's connected with this as it's seen in abortion and making it open season on innocent human beings in the wombs of women. Open season to kill them and dismember them. You tell me that does not have an effect upon the collective conscience of a nation? Now, thank God not everybody goes out and murders. There is a class of murderers and they need to be dealt with. But the society and the way that the, way that the media covers the events of terrible shootings, this happened in Nashville just uh, a while back uh, in the school, the Christian school. And the way the story is presented, you know what happens? Immediately, you're drawn into an environment where you feel sympathy for the perpetrator of the crime who is pictured as a victim. And those who have been, the, have been murdered, those who have been killed, it's almost a... Um, collateral damage or it's just a byproduct, but we really should get into the feeling of, of uh, identification with this person who was a victim of some kind or another in the past. That's the way it's, things are often, what does that do? It tends to mitigate the gravity of the crime and that someone in the image of God has been murdered and there ought to be justice applied to that situation. So this is the drift, folks. This is the drift, part of the drift which we're experiencing. I'm going to have to hurry, hurry to the conclusion here. I want to tell you something about getting on the wrong train, and I'm going to conclude. I read this story recently. I can identify with this. I came up in the generation we rode trains. <laughs> I get nostalgic when I watch movies from the old days, and I see trains. This man gets on the train, and... Uh, the conductor comes by, and he, he shows him, the conductor, his ticket. And the, the conductor, I can see him now, black hat, black, black outfit with a puncher, a hole puncher, and he's going to punch. And he shows the man, shows the, uh, the conductor, this passenger shows the conductor his ticket. And he says, sir, I have to tell you, you're on the wrong train. You're going in the wrong direction. So well, how can this be, he says, the passenger. I, I went to the ticket agent, and he said that this was the train that I was supposed to be on. So he had some brief time. So he went back and the, the, with the, the conductor, and he goes back to the ticket agent before the train leaves the station. And he says, I got this ticket, and it said I'm supposed to be on this train. But then the, the conductor said, but, sir, uh, he has been put on the wrong train. It's going in the wrong direction. And then the ticket agent paused and said, 
and looked at the conductor and says, I hate to, I have to inform you this, you were on the wrong train. You got on the wrong train yourself. Everybody else's on that train was going in the right direction. They were going where they wanted to go, but you weren't. So, point. Folks, we're in the right train, but it's going, we're being told we're going in the wrong direction. We're being led in the wrong direction. We have leaders who are taking us in the wrong direction. Elected leaders. Elections have consequences. But God is sovereign. This passage really jumps out off the page to me. Second Chronicles 15, 3 through 6. Read this just not long ago. For a long time, now this is when King Asa was the king. He happened to have been a good king. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. Second Chronicles 15, 3 to 6. What you want to notice in that is the chaos of the nations was being caused by God. He turned them over. This is where we can make legitimate principles that come up out of Israel's experience. When you reject God's moral law, no, we're not in a theocracy, but when you turn your back on God's moral law and you're going to set up your own regime of morality, you're turning your back on God. Now, you see, the answer to this is they needed teaching priests. They needed the law. But they had fallen into idolatry, and that's where we have fallen in our own de-progress, not progressives, where they, that name doesn't fit. And where we're going as a nation is that it's moving us back away into a world, a more pagan world, being celebrated, by the way, being celebrated. And so as believer priests, and kingdom citizens, we have to resist being normalized in the idolatrous folly of our secular culture. I want to emphasize this. Be careful. You say, well, I'm against the thing. I'm not for this, uh, this transgender uh, ideology and the, the, uh, the child abuse that's being put upon boys and girls who think they're not boys and girls and, and, and so on an abortion. Hey, I'm clear on that. Be careful, folks. There is a work taking place, a plan, a well-oiled plan. It's powerful, forces greater than we are, that are determined to normalize the evil. Well, they don't call it the evil. They think it's a step forward in progress. It's a progress thing. And the American, America's institutions are being corrupt by an evil philosophy. John Steinbeck had to write in that as a book and a movie, East of Eden. That's an interesting, it's really a story about what happened with, with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, East of Eden. And the Tower of Babel, interestingly, was East as well, where that removing God from government and building its own civilization. All right, sad point there. East of Eden. We're living East of Eden in a world that's beset by human sin. And what we have to do is that we will not allow 
the Satan is the God of this world. He's the ruler of this world, John 14, 30. That we do not allow ourselves to get comfortable with the normalization of evil. Say, so that's all right. Now, I had some more specific things to say here, and I decided to put a parenthesis, parenthesis around them. But be careful lest you be drawn into, it can be, you know, I, I'm not here to legislate your conscience on where you go, what your amusements are, what, your, what stores you go to. Actually, it just gets to kind of a, a, a forest that's so thick you can know how to, even investments, investments. I mean, there's hardly any place you go can go. I'm simply saying that we must, the state has become a god to many. I'll just, I'll just close, close with this since I'm, I, I found my, my dear friend, uh, Tony Evans, uh, I found this in his book on kingdom politics. I recommend the book to you, by the way. It's the best I've read on it. And Tony and I talked about these things just yesterday. This is what he says in this book in kingdom politics. You and I have a decision to make in our land right now. We can either continue in the rebellious trend of our nation apart from God's rule in his favor, or we can challenge our political leaders to return to God willingly and help bring healing to our land. Whether we do it willingly or whether God has, has to come down and intervene in order to get us right with him, he will accomplish his goal for his creation. If we choose to cooperate with the process, there will be less chaos along the way. If we don't, we will only need to turn on the evening news to see the ongoing results of having it our own way. God still rules the nations. Let's bow in prayer. Oh Lord, we, we don't doubt, we don't flinch that you do rule the nations. Oh Lord, as we've read that the sword is put into the hands of government and we're mindful that it was put into the hands of those who killed our Savior, slain by the sword of human government as Satan sought to eliminate the Messiah, Jesus Christ, from the, your plan. Thank you for the victory in his resurrection over death, sin and death, and that we have that same hope and we can live as overcomers. And so we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ, our ultimate overcomer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.